Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome. I'm Maurice O'Keefe, and this week's podcast is in response to an email we received from Canada recently to make available a podcast of the poet writer-philosopher John Moriarty. And we do welcome requests like that. I was privileged to have had the opportunity to, to have known John and to have recorded him at his home on the foothills of Mangerton Mountain, Killarney, where he spent the last few years of his life. In 2006, I recorded approximately three hours of interviews over three days, and I've selected sections of those recordings for this podcast. So let's get started. John Moriarty grew up in a small farm in my van in North Kerry. Like I had, the, I had the great good fortune of growing up in a small farm, 32 acres of fairly bad land, you know, where, uh, you know, you're 11 cows, like, and uh, not much going for us, like, in relation to material things. But we were able to run wild in the country, you know, at that stage. Like, we could go off, no problem, go five miles across bogs, like, to raid an orchard, you know, and, like, climb a fence that, that, that the elephants wouldn't climb, like, to get into the orchard, like, and hanging off trees like when the fed a hole and the archer came up the archer like and the only way we had to go was not back out over the fence because he'd catch us was to run straight through his back door and in his front door and out and out into the fields like you know with whatever few apples we had like and like was that there'd be a flood in the river and we'd be down below in the flood in the river like and we'd be lifting every stone like in the river searching for eels like under the stones you know so it was a totally sensuous life like and I remember Tom Welsh and myself every spring would go off looking for birds nests you know and there was one year like when we had 46 birds nests that we knew and we'd go back to them again and again and again like um, and we'd I'd put my finger in a wren's nest like and I'd feel five eggs and then we'd come back a few days later and put my finger in the same wren's nest and I'd feel five little chicks like do you know what I mean and, the, and when I'm talking about birds nest now I'm talking about the difficult birds like to find the wagtails and the chaffinches and even the goldfinches over in Paddy Haddon's orchards like so the idea of walking through the land every evening the fields every evening the neighbours fields all the fields around like and you know, look on, and we were perfect hunters, like, we would walk as silently as an African hunter up to a nest, like, so as not to disturb the bird, like, so we learned about nature that way, we learned, like, to put one foot silently in front of another, like, and if there was a bird sitting on a nest, there was a blackbird sitting on a nest, like, it was always a defeat for us if the blackbird left the nest, you know, like, we'd see the blackbird sitting in the nest and we'd walk away, and another day, like, we'd see, you know, the eggs or whatever, you know. But growing up in that little farm, uh, your mother, your mother was an O'Brien. She was O'Brien from over, over Barvagin, like, she was over just the borders of County Limerick, like, and she was a mighty woman, she was a force of nature, she was a power of nature. On her own yard, and her own floor, she was a mighty woman, and she had supreme intelligence and the gift of speech, like, and there was none of us a match for her. And like in a sense, the six of us were children, like grown up, grown up. <laughs> how do we, how do we come into our own reality in the presence of the enormity of this woman and her reality? You know, but we somehow did make it out anyway because. 
Um, but if you met that woman, that same woman in the square in the store on a fair day, she wasn't half the woman that she was in her own yard and in her own floor. Like, do you know what I mean? In her own yard and her own floor, she had supreme confidence, the confidence of the fullness of her humanity, do you know? And God knows there was a lot of humanity in her, do you know? And she was a great woman because she basically read the six of us because my father, there was no money in the 1930s when they were getting the calves. And my father went off to England, like, telling a few up for us, you know. And he spent all the war and spent, stayed away till 1958, like I think it was, you know, in England, sending back the few bob, like, that enabled us to live. In the so city. it was your mother, really, who reared uh, how many brothers and sisters? I have four sisters and uh, one brother. But my older sister, the way it wasn't all that, she was mad when my older sister reared me, like, and reared us all, because she was the one who put us in the tub in front of the fire every Saturday and battered us, like, and toweled us and... And she was the one, like, that I remember her combing my hair the first morning I went to school. Like, it was Madeline combing my hair, and I hated it because she was putting curls in my hair, and I didn't want curls in my hair, you know, because I was totally blonde at that time, you know. And she sent me off to school, and it happened that my father <coughs> and mother were in England. My mother had gone over to England to meet my father for a fortnight, like. I'd gone back to national school into seventh class or whatever it was, like, to just hang on until February when I'd be 14 and then I'd stay at home working on land. And so I was destined to become an avi, work on land in, in the summer and go off and be an avi in England in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the winter. Like That was the kind of life that was laid out for me. But I came home that first day from the first week in September from national school and Madeline said to me, she said, did you ever think going to St. Michael's in a store, you know? And I said, Jesus, never thought of that at all. So I'm supposed to stay at home and look after the land. Like, and she said, there's an old girl's bike outside in, outside in the middle house. If I rigged it up, would you go? <clears throat> and I didn't. I was too kind of stupefied and dumbfounded, like, to either say yes or no. Didn't she go out and rig up this old bike? And next morning she called me and said, I have to St. Michael's in a store. And my brother was going, and he raced off and headed me, like, and I only barely knew the way, like, and I ended up St. Michael's in a store anyway, like, and so... It was Madeline, my older sister, who in a sense changed my life. Mm. So, John, you uh, you started when you when you finished school in in secondary. Yeah. What what did you do then? Well, I mean, there was three ways out. Then you either went to Dublin Corporation, or you went became a policeman, or you became a teacher. And if you got high enough grades, like, the thing is to get the call to training, and didn't I get the old call to training? But, so I went to St. Pat's in Drumcondra, the teacher's training college in Dublin, and, but I realised, like, that teaching wasn't for me at that level, you know, at all, you know. Um, I still had huge questions that time. I had read Darwin and The Origin of Species at home under a, under a, a double-wick lamp, like, paraffin lamp, like, and it had shattered my life, like, when I... Do you always think that you you were questioning things? Yeah, I started at 17 and a half. I really... When we, it started with, with reading Darwin. That literally, I mean, the night I read the geological chapters in Darwin... Like, I grew up in a world that was made in 4004 BC, according to the Bible. Like, if you go back to all the biblical begats, like, you get to 4004 BC. Suddenly, I'm in a world that was... Darwin is talking about 400 million years, 600 million years, 800 million years. And I remember walking out that night, like, and standing in the yard. It was a wild night. And I hung in infinite space and infinite time. And the feeling I had was like that if you added me to infinite space and infinite time, it didn't make any difference. And if you subtracted me from infinite space and infinite time, it didn't make any difference. Like, So I was insignificant in the vastness of the universe, completely insignificant. And I suffered that insignificance horribly for years. So I couldn't rest teaching children, you know, even though I started teaching after Drumcondra, I started teaching, but I went to university thinking, went back to university, went to UCD, looking for answers, you know, and of course I didn't even get the questions, my questions weren't even being asked in university, you know, so I was left with a big with a big question still, you know, and they live with me throughout my life, like, and I wrestle with them. You went to England? Oh, yeah. After after doing that BA, I went off to England. I arrived in England with three Irish half-crowns, like, you know. And I spent the first night on the streets, like, you know. And Jesus, here I am again, the second night on the streets. Because I looked at London, I looked at the energy, I looked at the power, and I looked at the whole thing. And I couldn't give my energy to this crazy modern world, like people with their rolled umbrellas walking up and down. And Am I going to get into some kind of uniform, like, and become part of modern workforce? 
and I couldn't do it. Like I couldn't give my energy. And like I was thinking, here I am walking the streets of London, like, and there's food being thrown out of the back of every restaurant, and, and I'm hungry, do you know. And didn't I need someone? Uh, didn't I hear my name being called one day? I wasn't it a fella that I had managed, that I, another student that I'd given five pounds to in Dublin when we were students. And he said, Jesus, I've been wanting to give you back this old five pounds. And I had the five pounds like now. And I lived on, I remember it well, I lived on a shilling and a penny halfpenny a day. I was, I was get a baguette and cheese below in Leicester Square in a little delicatessen in Leicester Square and I walked down to St James Park and like that and then I'd sleep in the libraries in the middle of the day, during the day and I'd walk the streets at night like and that went on for about two and a half months you know while I was trying to trying to figure out like do I want to give my life and my energy to the modern world it was the modern world crazy place in 1954, I think it was, what went out around North Kerry, there was some mighty man coming to the stall, you know, that he could do mighty things altogether. And it turned out that we was a hypnotist, and Barney Enright was the only person in my van who knew what a hypnotist was like. And it turned out to be Golding, whatever, Paul Golding. And he brought people up on stage, like, and he he he, he hypnotised them to all kinds of daft things. And there was this last crowd that he brought up, you know, and he hypnotised them to think they were milking cars. And my mother was there and she was delighted because Kane Stack started in the stall, was above from the stage milking cows, doing the kind of things that she does every morning, you know, herself, you know. And Kane Stack's daughter, like, never went near, um, never went near a cow in her life, like, you know, because she was posh in the stall, you know. And didn't he do a wicked thing? He didn't bring them fully down. And when they went back out in the street, didn't one of them get down on the run and all modest minor car and started milking the car, like, and they all got started milking all cars down on Church Street in the stall. And I thought, like, there they are, like, hypnotised milking cars in the stall. And as I stood in Oxford Street, like, I thought, here are people, and they too are all kind of milking cars, like, and except the difference between Oxford Street now and London in the stall is that the people are laughing in the stall, there's no one laughing in Oxford Street, you know. So it was a sense like that we're all kind of hypnotised and we're all doing this old thing, this living the kind of life we're living. And I wasn't able to give myself to it, you know. But eventually, like, I found my way back to Leeds University because I met the head of the department of philosophy there and he said, would you come and join us? And then one day I met a woman in the philosophy department came in uh, who was a student of the philosophy and said, John, this is my mother from Canada, would you look after her, you know, for an hour because I have to go away and I said, I'll happily look after you, mother. you know, she's from Canada, I'll happily look after you. So I went across to a pub at the other side of the road and it turned out she was a professor in Canada and she was in England doing... Um, doing a lecture tour in Shakespeare, giving lectures in Shakespeare, you know. And at the end of about two hours, she said to me, there's a job vacant in my department in Canada. Um, would you think of applying for it? And I said, my God, I mean, yours is an English department. I've been only studying philosophy. And she said, I know, there's a job vacant in my department. Would you apply for it? And I didn't. And... But the daughter came up to me again later and said, would you apply for that job? And she says, I went home and I wrote it out in longhand anyway and didn't get the job. So I went off to Canada and I spent the next ten years, six years in Canada then teaching. What you were looking for is a solitude life. Yeah, uh, and to come back. And so to seek my bush soul, to come back into wilderness, to come back into country, to come back into the, the place of the wind and the rain. Because I'd grown up like with the wind and the rain, you know, the wind coming through the sash windows at home in North Kerry and the rain coming under the door, like, you know. And to come back to that and find out what am I outside of culture, what am I in nature. And I decided to come home to Ireland. And I phoned my brother one night when I quit and I asked him to rent an old cottage anywhere on the west coast of Ireland from 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 Manonhead to Cape Clear, like between the mountains and the ocean somewhere. And he got a place in Inishbuffin off the coast, an island off the coast, Galway Mayo up there, you know. And then I came into Connemara and I ended up spending more or less 23 years in Connemara. I spent a year and a half out in, in doing his garden for Robert Guinness up in Kildare and I spent a year or so in... Um, in a monastery in Oxford as a layman working in the garden there and I spent a year looking after my father but apart from those years I spent the rest of the time in Connemara and working as a gardener on a bike cycling around <laughs> cycling, cycling sometimes eight and a half miles to work yeah I mean I ended up living in Letterdife which was one of the a Victorian house like with, in a wood 
and I was lived there in the winter and then I was living in an Edwardian house called Lisnebrook in the summer and I'd cycle between them to work in both gardens like and uh, there was another garden as well the Anglers returned that I was working so yeah I would cycle eight and a half miles like to work every morning but if a shower came like I'd call in to see the Lennans on the way you know I'd call in to see the Kerrigans or I'd call in to see Lynn or Sean Caney like you know and I got to know the roads because I cycled them in like I'd cycle to the store to school you know seven and three quarter miles every morning now I'm back and I'll rally bike again you know and I'm cycling to work and working in gardens suited me hugely like you know because it turned out like that in Connemara even I was I think I was the only countryman that I knew in Connemara I'd become a countryman because I needed to be a countryman I'd been in the city and I'd been a city man now I'm in the country and naturally like a duck taken to water I became a countryman and like I worked every day with spade and shovel and digging fork and bow saw and stuff and like I inherited some great gardens an old Victorian garden and an old Edwardian garden like and I am there and I'm given freedom to redesign these downwards so the one man can look after them you know and I had the time of my life again You're now at a stage where you were you were concentrating on your books and writing, and so this became your life. Is that true? Not quite, like, because I would go to work every day and work in the gardens, and I'd be thinking about things, like, a bit all day on my own, I'd be thinking about things in the garden, and then I'd come home and even have a bit of like, and I'd write down whatever I'd been thinking about during the day, you know. So, in a sense, the writing was incidental to the thinking, you know, and it was such strange stuff that I was writing, like, that I couldn't ever imagine that anyone would ever publish this. This is never going to be published, like, you know. And I couldn't be a popular writer, like, and I wouldn't be, be a popular writer, just write for the sake of being popular and being well-known, you know. I had to write as I felt, as I thought, you know, and if this is difficult, so be it, like. And the hope was that maybe someone looking over my shoulder might, there might be the odd person who'd find what I was saying worthwhile, you know. But I knew I was writing books that were probably both unreadable and and unpublishable but didn't I Andy O'Mahony came through my door one night to do an old interview for radio and the next day didn't I have two, two well a couple of days later didn't I have letters from two publishers in Dublin asking me if I had any old manuscripts you know so that was the beginning I mean I offered I offered Turtle was gone a long time all three volumes to Anthony Farrell who's Lilliput Press and he looked at them Jesus I can't publish them do you know, do you know what I mean an unknown writer writing difficult stuff like this and he asked me if I could boil it down to about 200 pages and I said no I'm not interested but then didn't I write Dreamtime a book about two to 300 pages like and the moment he had that existed I'll publish this I won't even look at it I'll publish it you know and that was the beginning then of, of a publishing not a publishing career, like because, um, as I say, my stuff, uh, people find it difficult, and um, um, my stuff, like I don't know if I should tell you this, like in relation to uh, my sister. After that interview with Andy O'Mahony, my sister was walking down Brenda's, walking down the street, and in my van the next day and Gabriel Fitzmaurice the local teacher and poet like is walking the other direction back to school you know and he says hello Brendan she says hello Gabriel and he says how are you Brendan she says I'm fine how are you and he says I'm fine and then um, he asked her did you hear John on the radio last night and she says I did and he calls out what did you think of him and she said well at the very beginning of the programme Andy O'Mahony said his name is John Moratti and he comes from my van and that's the last thing I understood (laughs) so I mean, and when she read Dreamtime then, she said, Jesus, uh, do you know the way they say in the country? I had Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, I'm going to have to stick with books about British royalty and the Pope, like, do you know what I mean? So, I'm just trying to tell you, like, that my books, like, aren't heard of on Wall Street, like, you know, they aren't shaking the world, like, like whatever you call them, like, um, the big Celia Hearns books or whatever you like to, you know, um, Tolkien's books or whatever, you know. Can you describe to us, uh, please, John, the dream time? Well, Australian Aborigines have the idea that, that in the beginning was the dreaming. People walk across a featureless world, a featureless, faceless landscape, and they dream. And things come into existence. The things they dream about come into existence. Like, And they sing the songs, and they set up a whole kind of set of song lines across the f- what was once a featureless earth and now the whole earth is flourishing like there are mountains, there are rivers, there are lakes, there are trees there are animals, there's all kinds of things that's come into existence and they came out of the dream and the dreaming like 
And I wondered, like, think about Ireland's troubled history, how troubled our history is, like, you know, fighting, 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 every new people who come ashore, like we're fighting the people who were previously ashore, you know. And it has been war and rumours of war ever since, like, and I was wondering, how would you heal Irish history? How would you heal Ireland? How would you unite Ireland? And I thought... I asked myself, do we in Ireland have a dreaming? Do we have a common dream time? Like, And I find that we have, where we have the old myths and the old legends and the old stories. And I went back down to, the, to those legends and stories that are there and that, that have run simultaneously with history, stories about Cahollan, stories about Fintan MacBoker, stories about Crumdove, stories about Curry MacDara, like, you know, here in Kerry, the Paps of Danu just over on the other side of me, you know, Car Conway over here, like, you know, and I went back down into that old folk world, that the world of folktale, the world of myth, the world of legend, you know, and I wrote there and I said, like, if, if we could be united in our dream time, in our dreaming, then we could be sociopolitically united. If I can share these stories with Ian Paisley, like, you know, if we can say, that's a great story, if I can say, tell a story, and I think, I will say to Ian Paisley, I think that's a great story, do you think it's a great story? And if he's able to say it's a great story, then we have a vocabulary, then we have something in common, you know? So, the first thing to do, as distinct from John Hume saying, let's draw a line under history, I say, let's go below our troubled history altogether down into our dream time and see if we can be united there. And if we can become united there, sharing a common vocabulary, a common set of myths, a common set of legends, then we'll be united sociopolitically sooner or later. On my second visit to John Moriarty's house on the foothills of Mangerton Mountain in Killarney, and on this occasion I spoke to John about his father, his love of poetry, and at the end he sings a song. Well, John, I'm back again with you on a, a beautiful morning here. The sun is shining and it's a perfect day, isn't it? Yeah, the sun gets up right there in the east over the Paps. Even soon out it'll be beyond the Paps. And it illuminates the mountains here in front of them. It shines directly onto the mountains here in front of me. That's Tork Mountain and Tomies and the Reeks behind, you know. And the whole side of Mangerton is illuminated. I mean, in the winter now that wouldn't happen because the sun would get up much further to the south there, you know. But today everything is shining and the furs are in bloom and... I saw yesterday a magpie carrying the first bit of um, sticks to our nest, you know, so things are happening. You know. And you're feeling good, you're feeling great. And I, this is the first, I've had old chemotherapy and this is the first morning that I felt half right, half natural. Jesus, it is awful stuff. It, it swamps you and in a hundred thousand kind of side effects, except I don't feel like side effects, I feel like very central effects and <clears throat> in very central place of who you are, you know. But uh, anyway, here I am, still to the good, like, you know. John, I'm going to take you way back again in time to uh, to my van and, and uh, growing up there. Your father came from Dingle. Yeah, um, he came from he came from Ballandochig in Dingle, Comalochig. I mean, there's a great glen, isn't it? glen? It's a great calm. It's a great a mile long, two miles long journey into the into the mountain called Comalochig, and he was born at the mouth of that, like and. Um, he uh, he he married. He went to Canada, you know, and then down to the states. And he met my mother in the states, and um, in Springfield, in Massachusetts. And they came home during the depression. They bought a bit of land over land above in North Kerry, you know. And then during the nineteen thirties, you know, there was no money. There was skin in the calves, like, and he had to go to England, you know. He decided rather to go to England to earn some money for us, you know. And I remember my sister Madeline. It was one of the oldest memories I have. My sister Madeline coming down. And bundling me up in, in, a, in a blanket and taking me out to the gable end of the house. And all of us were down there, the whole six of us, the whole six children were down there to see if we could see the smoke from the train as it climbed from Listowel to Kilmorna and on into West Limbrick. And I remember it was a January morning, we perished with the cold, you know. I didn't know it was a January morning, but I knew it was a perishing cold morning. Like, and I don't know whether we saw the smoke from the, from the train or whether we didn't or whether we imagined we saw it. But anyway, that's what we were wanting to look at. Um, smoke from a train climbing from the stall to Kilmorna and on into West Limerick to take my father out of our world, you know. And I remember a few months, a few a couple of years later, then being bundled into a car, you know, and taken to the stall. And we were standing at the platform in the stall, you know, the train station in the stall, you know, and we were waiting for this train to come in. And Jesus eventually didn't hear the whistle, and then the lights came on down the track, you know. And into the station came this huge, big, turmoil of an engine, you know, 
And never have we seen steam coming out of anything like that. We used to boil, we used to have big pots at home to boil, boil water for the mess for the pigs and things and the hens and everything like that. Like and that just created bits of steam. But geez, we never saw steam like this. And then suddenly there, the doors opened as a train, and I saw a man standing in one of the door, like, and he had a double-breasted blue overcoat. And um, I saw my mother going towards him and they embraced, you know. And after a while he looked out at us. And I remember standing there like as he was looking at us out over my mother's shoulder, you know. And I asked myself, I wonder, does he know which of us I am? Does he know that I'm John, you know? And that was a child, like, yes. a little son needing recognition from his father, like, you know, there was a loneliness in that, like, I wanted to say, you know, which of us I am to say, you know, that I'm John, you know. But you had memories uh, when he was around of, say, walking the cattle up Oh, Jesus, that was later then, like, you know, I mean, <clears throat> 10 or 12 years later then, you know, I'm, I'm turning hay in the hill meadow. And I'm on my own, and the Lord save us. I've only done five or six rows, like of what, hundreds of old rows of age, you know. And I'm kind of fed up in that, you know, because I'd be wanting to cycle into the store in the hope that I'd meet Bridie Sullivan or someone, you know. <laughs> and, and, you know, but there I am, and anyway, the car stopped at the gate, like, and out comes this man, and I looked and I saw it as my father coming back from England. And he came over and he said hello to me, and we talked, like, for a bit, you know, and he said, have you, have you an extra pike anywhere, like, and this man all dressed up, like, have you, he said, no, an extra pike anywhere, you know, and he went out and he paid the old taxi driver and sent him away, and I said, there's a pike, a three-pronged pike, we call them, not fork, we call them pike, like, a three-pronged pike, like, stuck on the, on the briars inside, to the right there of the, of the gap, like, so he found this old pike, like, and he came, and didn't he fall in behind me? He didn't go ahead of me, like... And it was the ease with which he fell in behind me, a father fallen in behind a son, a father, in a sense, handing over precedence and power to the son, in a sense, almost handing over the farm to the son. And the ease and the grace with which he did it astonishes me to this day, like... Like, that he allowed the son to go ahead. A son may be needing to assert his strength and his power and his might and his the future is with me, like... And I always thought, like, Jesus, there's something. And there was a bit of aggression in me, like, like because, like, I would want to show to my father, like, that, you know, Jesus, like, you know, I mean, you're dealing with a young man now, you know, you aren't dealing with a child anymore, you're dealing with a young man now, like, you know, I'd be wanting to give off that vibe to my father, you know. But anyway, I thought, Jesus, there's something in this man, you know, there's something in this man. And then he fell in behind his 11 cows, like 11, 11 cows and calf, walking down the road behind them in the morning and walking up the road behind them in the evening, you know. And if, if in the evening when he went down to the west field for the cows, we had fields below the river, what we call the fields below the river, and was dry, he was driving all cows down there because they'd drink the water in the river and then go off into those fields grazing during the whole day. Like, And if there was a cow at the far west of the west field, like, he'd go back and drive that cow and he'd never set the dog, even though he had a dog. Like, And he'd be coming up the road, like, and he's walking behind 11 cows in calf. And if you look at old cows, like, you think Jesus is the Dingle Mountains they had inside them, they're so big and so slow and so wonderful. And they'll go to this side of the road and take a bite there, and they'll go to the other side of the road and take a bite there. And the bus man, the bus driver knew about my father and his cows, and the lorry that was carry up the flour and the feed stuff from um, from Sullivan's in Valley or Sullivan's lorry, the man he knew, and everyone on that road knew, like, that once my father and his cows on the road, you had to slow down the water, you know. And they talked to my father, like, and uh, something came into him walking behind them, 11 cows, something that will never come into you sitting in a, a desk in a school with the primary university. An animal wisdom, a wisdom out of the world, the wisdom of 11 cows and the rhythm and the pace of 11 cows. And sometimes when I'm caught up on a superhighway in the modern world, I think, Jesus, if we could only slow it down to the, to the rhythm and pace of my father's 11 cows at calf. If all the people in New York experienced that rhythm, if the people who boast about flying Concord, like, if they could come all the way down to the pace and the rhythm of 11 cows and calf walking up what we call the Valley Road, up 
all the way from the Westfield out the Bridgefield, up the Lower Hill, what we call the Lower Hill, up Fitz's Hill, you know. If we could slow down that world, a wisdom would come into humanity. And I think that wisdom is already in us. It only has to be evoked. And then in the night, the last thing my father would always do around 11 o'clock, like he's upon his hat, and he'd take down his lantern, he'd light the lantern, and he'd go over to the stall and he'd feed the cows hay. I mean, hay now. And every cow was tied to her own post at the time, you know, with a chain, you know, or a rope. And he'd feed the cows hay, not silage, hay, like... And then he'd sit behind them on a three-legged stool and he'd take out his, have his last fag for the night. Like. And whenever my father, you know, wanted to think deeply, he'd fall back into Irish, like, and he'd be thinking and meditating to myself over there in the stall. Like. And I remember, like, he was loved to do his thinking to the, to the sound of the cows chewing the cud. I mean, there was one phrase he had that he'd, you'd hear him saying it in the door at night, Margul Mahraun is Mahrashadenta, is Mahrayadagomonshian. Because, I mean, a contented man, I have done my ploughing and my harrowing and my flocks are safe from the bad weather. They're in out of the bad weather, like. And he's over there and his cattle are in out of the bad weather and he's fed them hay. And he's is mean of it's a mock of them vain. And one night he came in and he stood inside the door and I saw him lift up the, 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 the globe of the lantern and quench the lantern like and then he was hanging it up, hanging it up like on a on a nail behind the door, you know, the quenched lantern, and as he hung it up with his back to me, he said, uh, I've come to din the thinking, John, but I still haven't found answer. Like and that's the place where all the mystics, the Buddha arrived there, St. John of the Cross arrived there, Eckhart and Towler, all the great Muslim mystics arrived at that place. But my father didn't know that he'd arrived at the right place, the place where you hang up the latch of the light of your mind, the light of his lantern, like, and go into what St. John of the Cross calls the dark night of the soul. Because it's in that dark. St. John of the Cross talks about that dark. He says, O noche que guiaste, O noche amable mas que el albarado, O night more lovely than, O no night that guides, O night more lovely than the dawn. You know, it isn't a negative night. That's the night that is God. That's the darkness of God. Let the darkness of God come upon you now, Jimmy. You've quenched your lantern. You've quenched the light of your minds, of your eyes and minds. Let the darkness of God come upon you now, Jimmy. And then Jesus, he grew old with my mother, you know, and she'd get up in the first thing in the morning in the crater, like, and she'd have a bit of old strength in her, you know, and she'd make the breakfast and that part of things there early in the morning. And then she'd get tired, like, and he'd get up in the middle of the day and he'd make the dinner, you know. And one day he made the dinner for her, you know. He was, he had made the dinner, like, and wasn't he peeling the spuds, the couple of spuds to put in with the vegetables and the meat, like, and she was reading the paper to him. And didn't she die in mid-sentence? Suddenly, she got a massive heart attack, like. And suddenly, in the middle of the sentence, like, she was gone. And it nearly killed him. It nearly killed him. And I was going to have to stay at home to look after him then, you know. And I did. I stayed at home to look after him, like. And he was, he was in an awful state, like. And he had had cancer of the prostate, like, so he was the one who was supposed to die, like, he was wasted away to nothing, he was wasted away to four bones at that time, like, but now it was, it was Mary that was gone, like, you know, and I remember John Barrett, my brother-in-law from Dinamore, you know, Madeline's husband, you know, when we went down to the grave, like, that day in Galebridge Cemetery, you know, John Barrett said, Jesus, we might as well stay in our Sunday clothes now because we'll have to come back to bury him tomorrow, like watching him looking down into the grave after Mary, his wife, like. And I remember that night, like, the first night I was left with him, I said, Jesus, maybe there's some kind of old providence in this, you know. Maybe you left her lie alive, like, to, be, to pray for her, you know. Jesus, didn't he suddenly have a purpose in life again, you know. And he started praying for his wife, Mary, who was dead, like. And I moved from the far end of the house, the old gable end room, up to the parlour so that put my bed in the parlour, like, so that there'd only be the kitchen between us and I keep the doors open so that if anything happened in the night, like, I was expecting him to die any night. So that he'd die, like, so that, uh, you know, if he, if he got into trouble or started dying, like, that I'd be there beside him, you know. And Jesus said, 
these were dark January nights now. She died. She was buried, I think, on the 16th of January, you know. And these were the dark January nights, like, and I would hear him praying above in the room, like, and I I got curious one night, and I went up and stood in the kitchen, and I, to hear what he was saying, like, and the prayer he was repeating over and over and over and over again all night long was, May Jesus that died on the cross have no hard feelings against you, Mary. May Jesus that died on the cross have no hard feelings against you, Mary. May Jesus that died on the cross have no hard feelings against you, Mary. And I would listen to that. I would wake night after night below in the room and I'd hear that like, I would ask myself, where is he getting the strength to do it, if nothing else? Like, and there were times when I felt he'd flow to the house out into eternity. Jesus, we haven't done time anymore. Like, we're out in eternity somewhere. And I went on and went on. And I'd go up and I'd, in the morning then I'd go into the room and say, how are you, Jimmy, do you know? And he'd tell me, he said, she's still in the house, like, and Mary's still in the house. And he'd give me all the signs about how he had her in the house and what she did in the house and where she was in the house like and I had a sense myself that she was still in the house that my mother hadn't gone on the great journey that my mother hadn't departed like but what was her reason for some people around? linger some people linger especially when you crashed out all of a sudden you linger and if you linger you can become an angry ghost do you know what I mean if you don't go on the journey like that's ahead of you if you you can get attached to the shadow of the earth like and if you do, you're in trouble. And I had an awful sense, an aching, awful sense, that I'm in a house like where my mother's in trouble. She's in spiritual trouble. She's in the spiritual. She's in the house, but she's in a. She spiritual. was trapped within the house. Yeah, or that she's she's lingering within the house, like she isn't going on the journey. She has. She's. Was she, there something that she still wanted to? Whatever. Finish? I had yes. no idea. Yeah. Like. And my father would tell me, and then there was one man, and I asked him, I said, what was it like last night, Jimmy? And he said, he said, she was there all night at the trash of the door, they would say the trash of the door, between the kitchen and the living room, and she was trying to come in. And he said, but it kills me now to say it. Like He said, she has had landlords now, John. They were slashing her, you know. That's what he said, and I think, Jesus... Like, my father's a sound man, the soundest man you could ever meet, like, so he's telling me the truth, you know. And I would go down and read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, like, and the very same kind of experiences that my father was was understanding, my mother was going through, I'd read about them there, you know, in the time between death and rebirth, do you know what I mean? Exactly that, you hear slash, kill, slay, you hear all that kind of old stuff, like, in what they call the Bardor State, you know, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, like... And he prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for her. And then one morning, and that was the prayer, may Jesus that died on the cross have no hard feelings against you, Mary. And then one morning, about six months later, I went up and he said, she's gone now, John. Mm. And he stopped. Now, can I tell you, Morris, that I was present for that six months. And it was the greatest requiem in the literal sense of a requiem mass that any human being has ever performed for another human being. He went down into eternity after my mother. I'm sure of it. He went into year after, after her, like, and he laid her soul to rest, like, he guided her to the right place, like, you know. And we have a requiem mass for the dead, like, requiem means rest. Requiescat in pace. My father, I am certain of it, granted rest. He's, he wasn't a priest, but he performed a requiem for my mother over six months, you know, and now she's gone. And I remember, like my father used to always say, you know, that I've done my purgatory and I'll find the right way, like, and it is a marvellous thing, like, to live in a house maybe with someone who's won five All-Ireland medals or someone who has, I don't know, been to 10 or 15 or 50, 60 different countries, like, but I lived in a house with a man who believed he'd gone through his purgatory, you know. Now, that's astounding, to live in a house with a man who believes he's gone through his purgatory and when he goes into the hereafter, he's going to find the right way, like, and I said to him, Jimmy, the sun was shining on top of him, I remember, like, in his bed, like, and I said, Jimmy, them all 11 cows that you've been walking up and down the road after for the last 15 years, like, you know, 
they'll be on the other side when you arrive there and all you'll have to do is fall in behind them and they'll find the right way for you like and his answer was instant he said they will John the cows adores me and that was it when did you start writing poetry I suppose around 19, certain moods would come down on me, like, um, it was as if, like, some very deep place within myself was in seance with me, not me in seance with it, but some very deep, deep, deep proud place within myself would be in seance with me. And I'd sit down and I'd write something, and, like, in the beginning I wouldn't even think of them as poems, but they had the shape of poems and things like that, and to me, I suppose, I dared to believe that they felt like poems and read like poems, you know. And then, you know, I went on to training college in Dublin, I went on to UCD, like, and... I was finding it tough going, like submitting to culture, submitting to civilization. You know, I mean, Freud talks about civilization and its discontents and its malcontents. Like, I was a kind of countryman inside of the city, inside of civilization. Like, and I remember one day going out, you know, walking by the canal, you know, and the Lord save us, like, the Grand Canal, Lord save us, like, that paddy cavernous all over it, and that I didn't love at all because, like, it was so engineered and it didn't sound like any of the rivers that I knew, you know. And I would almost plead with God you know, um, instead of me being a canal, an engineered canal engineered by culture, like you know, let me be a wild river and then I went out one day to Monkstown out around Monkstown, just looking around the city you know, and f- what it was like in the outskirts and there was one place where I saw all these trees that had been subjected to topiary, and I say topiary, not topiary like, you know, they were turned into cubes and turned into pyramids and turned into squares and turned into spheres and all kinds of things like and thought what a terrible thing to have done to subject all these bushes to to such Euclidean shapes like you know mm-hmm. and I said like you know please God if you can't if you can't accept me as a wild river then I'm lost and if you can't accept me as a wild bush you know not turned into a cube or into a Euclidean shape then I'm lost like you know but you have to accept me, God, as a wild river, and you have to accept me as a kind of wild bush, like the, the like of which I'd see you growing below and carry somewhere, you know, side of a bog road, you know. And that was my plea to God, like, me the wild river, me the wild bush, like. And I remember, like, thinking, I'm, 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 I'm almost forced to live a diminished life, a small life here, like. And one day I wrote an old poem called In Buddhist Footsteps, and it was published in a college magazine called Stevens, St. Stevens, you know, and... I remember it came out like, and I remember looking at it and being unhappy with a couple of verses of it, and then going back to change it. But this is the this is what I, I would have the cha- I call it in Buddha's footsteps, and I'll explain to you maybe the, later why I call it that. By a fire escape I go from all gables and facades, from things that suffer spring in a trembling, bringing forth, leaving weeping walls and all walled walking. I walk down to a stream through three wet gardens. There in the shade of a living oak my fingers seek your old, old hair and I sit pensive down once having touched your face. And yet your eyes belong not here nor hereafter if we meet and the moonlight meets your hair. For an Eden, one evening you cast a short shadow on the child in your fear, the half-moon was your fault. Afraid of the wisdom, the wingspan of words, we saw love through his eyes, and the priest-king talked for the tongue-tied stars. But once it was night, once one of his mirrors had stolen your face, the road out was ours, and the only angels there were sown by our footsteps sobbing behind us. But I could tell death, I have loved you, and so I am deeper than sides. I could even tell Christ, although I am all body, all second-hand head, I'm a Christian again. But I've opened my mind, I've opened my gates, long ago, to God's horses. Like, here, like, by a fire escape I go, Jesus, like, as if as if my house was on fire, like, I escape by a fire from modern life, from modern city life, like, and I'm searching for the big life, I'm searching for the great life, and I'm searching for entire life, and I'm searching for what I would call the sanctity of inclusion and integration, rather than the sanctity of... Um, of repression and exclusion. I mean, out in the heat, King Lear, Shakespeare's Shakespeare, great play, I mean, he says, but to the girdle do the gods inherit. What he's saying here is, from the crown of my head to my trouser belt, mm-hmm. the gods inherit that part of me. Beneath the girdle, beneath my trouser belt, belongs all the fiends, the fiends you know. Belongs to the fiends, to all the devils, in other words. Like, so I'm divided into a so-called higher nature and a lower nature. Now, I reject that totally. Like, I throw away, I mean there are two things I throw away, I throw away the, the model slide rule, I mean Christianity kind of gives you a model slide rule and you have to be as straight as a slide rule, when I say 
there's giftedness and micro goodness too, you know. And I say there is there's good life below the girdle, you know what I mean. And you know, so I just want integration, the life of integration as, as distinct from the life of suppression, the sanctity of integration, even the belief, like that, ultimately the whole psyche can be can be sanctus, you know, united, uh, yeah, and be together. and be sacred and be holy, you know, in its totality, you know. So that's why, like, at the end, that's why I'm rejecting the small life here, the life of me as a canal, the life of me as a cubed or a shaped bush. Do you know what I mean? I want my wife. And is this the Buddhist way of thinking? I call it Buddhist footsteps because there's a wonderful image of the Buddha. I mean, I thought I got permission from the Buddha because you see him on the night of his enlightenment and one of the great Nagas, a serpent king, comes up over him and expands his seven serpent heads, hooded heads behind him to protect him from the terrors that are assaulting him, you know? Mm. Now, this is the so-called lower nature, as it were, sheltering the higher nature, what we call the higher nature, do you know what I mean? And that image, to me, gave me permission to write this kind of poem, like... Um, to almost not be a Christian and to be a Buddhist, you know. Um, but, you know, there are things here like afraid of the wisdom, the wingspan of words we saw love through his eyes. You could imagine, like, and the priest king talked for the tongue-tied stars, but once was night, once one of his mirrors had stolen your face, the road out was ours, and the only angels there were sown by our footsteps sobbing behind us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you can imagine this old priest king shining a mirror in front of him. He steals your paradisal face. Do you know what I mean? He turns the mirror away, having mirrored you in his mirror, his kind of magic mirror, like. And he's stolen your paradisal face, and you're left with your ordinary conventional face, like. You're left with your song of experiences, the influence song of innocence, like. And uh, you know, so my way of going, like, was um, was to seek. Not innocence prior to experience, but innocence in and through experience, like. Because I found out, like, and had already found out at that stage, like, I think that I wasn't a virgin to begin with. Like, I didn't come into life as a virgin. I discovered virginity in bed with a woman I loved. Do you know what I mean? It was there, I just, because up until then, like, you'd be looking at a woman, you'd be looking at her shape, you'd be looking at her breast, you'd be looking at her bottom, you'd be looking at a woman, like, in all kinds of ways, like, they were pretty lustful. But then, Jesus, you're suddenly in love with a woman, like, and it's a sacrament of tenderness in bed with her. Do you know what I mean? And suddenly it was in bed with a woman that I discovered my virginity, that I became chaste. Mm. I became chaste, like, so I acquired this great virtue, not... Not, 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 not in some paradise before, before the fall, like, but in and through experience, like. And this is why I say in this, in this book, in this poem, like, that I opened my gates long ago to God's horses. And I'm trying to say there also, like, that, that I am immortal, not because I have an immortal substance called soul in me. I'm immortal because I have loved you, but I could tell death I have loved you and so a particular woman, but I could tell death I have loved you and so I'm deeper than sides. All death, the skeleton, will come at me with his sides, like the whole four bones will come at me with his sides, and I look at him and I smile and I say, I am deeper than the blade of your sides. However deep the blade of your side is, I am deeper because I've been in love. And I, I'm just wondering, did you ever actually sing? Did you ever sing a love song? I did, but the Lord save us, uh, Morris. I'm now, I'm now six months into chemotherapy, like, and it has me pinned back to the wall and has weakened me in my nature and has weakened me in my voice. It has weakened me in my memory. It has weakened me, like, it has. So, well, Jesus, if, I don't if even you're, know if, you're if I could it. sing. I don't yeah. even know if I could sing, you know. Yeah. But I used to sing in love pubs in Inishbuffin when I was there, you know. So, it, it, it'll probably be terrible, but, you know, um, Jesus, I don't know. Well, I sing Peggy Garden, maybe. I'll try, but, you know, the voice isn't there. I don't have the voice now with the chemotherapy, like, you know. Oh, Peggy Garden, you are my darling. Come sit you down upon my knee. Come tell to me the very reason why I am slighted so by thee. 
I put my head to a keg of brandy. It was my fancy, I do declare, for when I'm drinking, I'm always thinking and wishing Peggy Gordon's there. I'm so in love that I can't deny it. A troubled heart lies in my breast. Tis not for you to let the world know it. A mind in love can know no rest. I wish I was in some lonesome valley where womankind might not be found, where the little small birds do range their voices, and every moment's a different sound. Oh, Peggy Gordon, you are my darling. Come sit you down upon my knee. Come tell to me the very reason why I am slighted so. Oh, by thee, why I am slighted so. Oh, by thee, why I am slighted so. Oh, by thee, why I am slighted so. Oh, John, that was, that was absolutely beautiful. And thank you very, very much indeed. That was beautiful. Was it? Yes, it was. Well, we've come to the end of this week's podcast, and I hope you enjoyed listening to writer, poet, and philosopher John Moriarty. There are many hours recorded with John, and if you would like to find these recordings, you can do so by going on to www.irishlifeandlore.com and search for John Moriarty. I'm Morris O'Keefe, and I look forward to bringing you another podcast next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.